Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. When you are attached to the way things are, it is very difficult to put your faith in anything else. You do not trust yourself to risk experiencing anything other than what you already know. You do not trust life to bring you the results of rewards you desire. You do not trust that you can and will handle whatever comes your way. Without trust, there can be no faith. Without faith, you will hold on to what you know. In the process, you will not be making any progress. Attachment is another way of saying, I don't have faith in anything else. I know what this is. I can handle this. You want to control your experiences and your responses? You see, rather than fight with you for control, life will send you into the pit of stagnation. This can be extremely painful. Attachment reflects a lack of faith in your ability to learn. Learning takes place three ways. You learn by force. You learn by choice. You learn by being forced to make a choice. When you are attached to what you know or what you can control, chances are you will be forced to make a choice. You can choose to stay attached and be stagnated in pain and confusion, or you can let go in faith that your next experience will be exactly what you need but did not know you needed. Until today, you may have been holding on, attached to the way things are. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair helps you open your heart to the possibility that there is something great waiting for you. Here is where you can be comfortable to let go of anything or anyone you are attached to, freeing you in faith so that you will be pleasantly surprised. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us stretch faith beyond what we know to a greater and grander experience of becoming faith-filled and fear-free. How are you? Well, pretty well. I suppose we're stretching our faith now into a new year. Well, the first question that I have for you, because many people want to know how you're doing since you bowed out of celebrating public mass Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Well, I think, uh, first of all, in answer to your question, I'm doing just fine, thank you. But it's a parable about how things are in our society today that, and, and the care that we have to take. For those listeners who might not be aware of what you're referring to, I, I and, and, and uh, Bishop Betancourt and, and some others were uh, at... Uh, uh, one of our parishes the Monday before Christmas. It was a, a kind of a private visit. There were, were just a couple people there uh, to see something. But the problem is that uh, the pastor, who at the time uh, was perfectly well, uh, the next day developed symptoms uh, of COVID. Mm. And uh, so we were waiting for the results. And on the very day of Christmas Eve, got the results indicating that he was positive. And so this, it was not possible on Christmas Eve for me or Bishop Betancourt to get a, even a rapid test at St. Francis Hospital. And so as we announced that evening, out of an abundance of caution, uh, neither of us bishops would be celebrating public mass until we could be tested. So the rector uh, of the cathedral, uh, Father Dan McLaren, uh, wound up having some two extra masses, the ones that were televised. And thank you very much, Father John, for 
all that you do to get these things uh, televised for our people. And I'm sure he did a fine job. He did, yes. And then, then on Saturday, we went to uh, St. Francis Hospital and got the testing, and we were, thank God, negative. So we, we would not have been a danger to people. But I, I, I say this is a parable or a story because we've given every assurance that we in the church will be uh, super cautious uh, to not to spread the virus. And uh, I felt it was important for us bishops to be even... Uh, even if it was a superabundance of caution, for us to be very, very careful. And I might add that because Bishop Betancourt is here in contact with our seminarians uh, at the Pastoral Center, all of them had to make a great sacrifice. They could not go home on Christmas Day. They had to wait till the day after Christmas until they their test was uh, confirmed because they were tested with us at St. Francis, and they were all negative. So this is the kind of thing that happens a lot to people. And uh, we just have to be super vigilant and cautious. And I'm very concerned about our priests. You know, there, there's been several priests who have been uh, COVID positive. Some of them, thank God, have not had symptoms. Others have had symptoms. Up till now, uh, no one has needed to be hospitalized where the symptoms became grave. But it meant over Christmas that some of our parishes for example, the parish I was referring to, you know, yeah. um, they all their Christmas masses were were canceled um, at the last and, minute. As a matter at the of last time. minute, uh, yeah. And so, this means that um, we we just have to be uh, as careful as we can be. And now that they say there are new strains that are even more infectious that are developing, uh, we just have to be as careful as we can be. Well, thank God that you uh, you were negative along with the, the other members who were with you at that parish. Archbishop, let me ask you about some sad news that, that we just got today, as a matter of fact. One of the world's leading experts on the Latin language, Father Reginald Foster, died on Christmas shortly after midnight in a nursing home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, Father Foster worked at the Vatican translating documents for four popes, he died of complications from COVID-19. You knew him well, did you not? Well, I wouldn't say I knew him well personally, but I certainly did know him. I have to say, I mean, this is not a laughing matter when somebody dies, and I, I pray, offer a prayer for his eternal rest, but he, I'm smiling because he was quite a character, mm. um, he was, <laughs> very much so. Uh, and in fact, I, I did see the New York Times actually wrote up a big obituary uh, for Father Foster, and it, uh, it it talked about his uh, somewhat eccentric ways and his personality, uh, but he was a superb Latinist. You know, I remember when I was working in Rome at the Secretariat of State that uh, Father Reggie would uh, give a, a, a tour, uh, for, you know, I mean, it was by arrangement, of the of Vatican Palace, and he also gave tours of the Roman Forum. Uh, and I, I never was able to go on one of his uh, forum tours, but I'm told they were absolutely fascinating because his knowledge, ancient Roman history, and his yeah. knowledge of the of the Latin language was superb. I remember once I had to take something to his office at the Vatican, and and I got there, and I, I, I went in, there was nobody, nobody answered. I looked inside, and it, the room was totally bare. There wasn't a thing. And I said to the usher in the hallway, I said, it, that can't be Father Foster's office, is it? I said, there's nothing. He said, no, that's it. He When he worked, he, he didn't have so much as a a dictionary or a there wasn't anything in his office he did it all out of his head and the only thing that was on a hook 
was his religious habit that he would put on over his jumpsuit that he got at Kmart or something. He used to like <laughs> to wear a jumpsuit, like a, a garage mechanic or something. Yeah, yeah. He was a very eccentric uh, person, but but uh, may, may he rest in peace. Absolutely, absolutely. Tomorrow, Archbishop, we celebrate the memorial of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the first native-born American to be beatified and then canonized. She was born in New York. Elizabeth Seton married and became the mother of five children. She converted to Catholicism after her husband's death and founded the American Sisters of Charity, a community of teaching sisters which began Catholic schools throughout the United States. And she uh, especially helped the education of underprivileged children. She laid the foundation of the American parochial school system. Are Catholic schools throughout the country in danger or do you know of some dioceses where Catholic schools are flourishing, Archbishop? Well, the, the commemorating St. Elizabeth Seton is very important in the history of our church and our country and to ask her intercession for us, obviously. But it is a bittersweet uh, memorial inasmuch as uh, she was, as you indicated, really one of the pillars upon which Catholic education in the United States was established and flourished. But it's bittersweet because that whole great edifice of Catholic schools has pretty much collapsed. You know, I, yeah. I reported uh, some years ago when we did about pastoral planning that Catholic school enrollment in the Archdiocese of Hartford is down 80% in 50 years. So where there used to be 10 kids, there's now two. And the reality is that since then, it probably has even gotten worse, although I haven't compared and I'm, I hope I'm, uh, I'm wrong. I hope we're, we're not any worse than that. I don't know. Yes, there are some places where school, uh, Catholic schools may be doing better, uh, perhaps in the South and in the West, I would think. But in uh, the Northeast and the Midwest, which was so strong in the Catholic population and all of these institutions, things have suffered uh, tremendously. Uh, partly it's because there aren't many kids around compared to what there were when, when you and I were kids. And secondly, the cost uh, has gone up considerably because the sisters who lived in community with a vow of poverty and, and didn't uh, require a lot of uh, employment costs, that's gone. And so now, obviously, lay teachers who teach have to support their families and themselves. They have to get uh, a wage. And, and of course, today, uh, those wages and benefits, particularly benefits, are not at all cheap. We just have all kinds of challenges to Catholic schools. Uh, I dare say, too, that we're always having to fight the good fight when it comes to Catholic identity. You know, mm. uh, by that I mean it's one thing to have a Catholic school as an alternative to the public school for various secular reasons, but what about the faith, you know, and how strong is the faith? Some of our Catholic schools do a tremendous job in imparting the Catholic faith to their students. Others, it's a real difficulty because a lot of times the parents send their kids to Catholic school, but they don't even go to Sunday Mass. So it's... Um, you know, it's it's a very challenging situation. Is it worth fighting for the resurgence of Catholic schools today, then? Oh, absolutely, it's worth fighting for. And, you know, part of the Connecticut Catholic Conference, we have someone dedicated to looking out for the interests and promoting the interests of Catholic education. And they, they do a very fine job. But the problem is, here in Connecticut, uh, there's not much available. As much as we try and, and persuade and, and argue for help, you know, if all of our Catholic a grade school kids tomorrow all went to the public schools, 
we would create a huge problem, uh, financial and otherwise, for the state and mm-hmm. uh, you know for the public authorities. But when it comes to giving us something, some consideration for parents who send their kids to Catholic schools, there's not very much forthcoming. We, we were so pleased that with the uh, that at least in the in the regrettable events of the pandemic, that the federal monies did not exclude uh, private schools, Catholic schools. So there, you know, there was some benefit there. And I will say that there are some states in the union where uh, Catholic education, Catholic uh, school parents do receive a break from the state. That is not true uh, in Connecticut. I mean, there are some things, but they're, they're, they're rather uh, minor. You know, when I was bishop in Toledo, we ran a, a wonderful school in the city uh, largely for uh, black or Hispanic kids, uh, mm-hmm. but not only for them uh, in the 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 uh, in the city in the urban areas. But each of those students received uh, from the state of uh, Ohio uh, four thousand five hundred dollars a year, you know, for for for, for education. Uh, so if we had that, we still the diocese still had to raise a half a million dollars through fundraising efforts, but it worked. But here, there's no no such thing. And so it becomes very, very challenging indeed. And historically, you know, uh, the anti-Catholicism that led to the so-called Blaine Amendment that was part of many uh, state constitutions absolutely forbidding any state aid uh, to uh, Catholic schools, that's been uh, challenged and and, uh, struck down now. I believe that the Supreme Court did rule that 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 was not appropriate. But I, I say that with some hesitation only because... What difference does it make if if states still refuse to to provide anything or or provide very little? So I am grateful for the few things that we uh, the some help that we get uh, from uh, the state, but uh, in Connecticut it's very little, and um, we keep trying. I want to assure our people that we do keep trying, uh, but it's a very big uphill battle. Well, under the inspiration of uh, Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, it would be appropriate for us to ask her to intercede and provide for the resurgence of our Catholic schools these days. Yes, with the, with the understanding that, that through her intercession, may they truly be Catholic uh, in what they teach and practice, uh, not only by what's in the books and given to the students, but by the, the children and their families, uh, you know, especially participation at Mass and uh, you know, a devout Catholic life. Let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, Archbishop, then we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from Pope Francis's homily at the Casa Santa Marta, delivered on June 20th of 2013, and is called, The Real Christian Prayer Says, Father. The Pope says, Jesus says that the Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask for it. Father, this is the key to prayer. Without saying this word, without hearing this word, we cannot pray. Whom do I pray to? Almighty God? Too far away. I don't feel close to him, nor did Jesus. Whom do I pray to? Universal God? That's a little banal these days, no? Pray to the universal God. This polytheistic formality seems superficial. We need to pray to our Father the Father who created you, the Father who gave us all life, you, me. He accompanies you on your path. He knows your whole life. He knows the good you've done and the not-so-good, too. He knows everything. If we don't begin our prayers with this unspoken Father, 
said within our hearts, we cannot pray like Christians. Archbishop, your thoughts? Well, what the Pope says is um, so fundamental to Christian revelation, so fundamental to who Jesus was and what he proclaimed himself to be and what he taught us. It is, a, it is like the foundation. It is the rock upon which uh, Christian revelation and faith is based. And yet we know today that in our ever stranger world, where the most fundamental realities of life are being uh, challenged and refashioned, that even to talk about fatherhood or motherhood becomes an optional thing or becomes uh, an obstacle for some people, which is very, very, very troubling. And, you know, in the end uh, becomes not only unchristian, but even anti-Christian. So that these fundamental truths, you know, of, of, of uh, man and woman, and then of something that transcends human sexuality completely, and that is the fatherhood of God, that is something that we, we have to try to re-appreciate uh, always, uh, what it means that God is Father. And I'm, I'm thinking that this is becoming going to become more and more a difficulty as um, our culture becomes more and more confused about our own uh, sexuality. You know? Yeah, yeah. you know, the other day when we went uh, for our test to the hospital, we, you know, they, inter they take the questionnaire while you're sitting in the car. And there were the four of us in the car and we opened the window and the gentleman came up and he took our information and he said, now, looking right at us, he said, and what, what is your, your uh, sex? <laughs> and, he, and we, you know, we all said male. And he actually apologized. I don't want to get him into trouble because, because but, but uh, well, people wouldn't know who he is. But he said, well, I'm sorry, I have to ask. That is how our country is and our culture wow. is going, that you have to be asked. In other words, we could have said, well, I, you know, no, I, 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 I'm a man, but, I, but I'm not really a man. I'm something else. Or I, I don't want to identify my, my gender. I don't, I don't want to declare whether I'm a man or a woman. I mean, that's the kind of situation we're in today. And this, this is a radical ideology that is getting further and further and further planted in our society. Uh, now, you know, I guess you pushed one of my buttons with the Pope's talk about the fatherhood of God. But we, we do have to think carefully about where we're headed and the kind of ideology we're embracing and the kind of repudiation of fundamental rationality and, and the, the givenness of our, of our human nature and of our personhood that is being called into question. And when we start to do that, you know, how can you understand the fatherhood of God if, if you can't, if, if you're free to decide whether you're even a man or a woman? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about those situations where people have uh, these, uh, these questions that need to be dealt with sensitively, because there are people who have this uh, psychological uh, barrier or whatever, but that's not the same thing as a whole society just making a gender optional, you know, or at whim. That's a very strange situation indeed. One other question, Archbishop. <laughs> yes. On, on this that the Pope has said. He says, if we don't begin our prayers with the unspoken Father, said within our hearts, we cannot pray like Christians. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that my prayer is not effective or there's some kind of defect to my prayer if I don't say Father? Well, yes, if, because if we believe uh, in Christ and we believe the revelation that Christ has made to us that is as clear as a bell in Scripture and tradition, then you know, if you don't believe that God is your father, with all the cautions that fatherhood of God is not the same as male-female 
uh, of, of in creation of men and women, although they're not unrelated. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you, if, you, if, if you don't believe that, well, then you're repudiating something fundamental about the revelation that Christ gave us. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading for today. The church celebrates the epiphany of the Lord, and our gospel is taken from Matthew's gospel, the second chapter. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will govern my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Archbishop, what inspiration do you take away from this gospel account? Well, the message, I think, of course, is that um, the, the a sinful world is is uh, threatened by God and by uh, Christ, and so you have King Herod wanting to get rid of this threat. But then you have the Magi, who although themselves are rulers, you know they call them the three kings or wise men from the east, that they do homage and and recognize the truth of Christ. And this is the way it is until the end of time. It's two kinds of re responses by two kinds of people. Those who are threatened by God uh, and who want to um, eradicate faith and, and, and God from life, and those who embrace it and who worship God. You know, all of us have to make a decision maybe not quite so drastic as this one, illustrated by this uh, chapter of Matthew, but we, we, you know, it's, it's a decision for or against Obviously, as people of faith are the ones who want to uh, give our homage and adore God incarnate in Christ. Well, Herod was very cunning and conniving, getting the Magi to go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and do him homage. Since then, there have always been those who divert our attention from Christ and distract us from paying him true homage. What today, Archbishop, are the major distractions drawing us from worship of God? Well, I think it's a, a growing kind of confidence that some people have that uh, science uh, and technology and human ingenuity can explain everything. 
that there is, you know, God uh, is superfluous to to understanding where we came from and 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 uh, about uh, you know life itself. Uh, you know, but the scriptures say that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Uh, that's foolishness uh, because we we know that uh, God is real and God is the source of all that is. Uh, the beauty, the goodness, the truth of the of of what is created are all reflections of this providence of God. But I think today many people, uh, you know, they say there there's no atheists in foxholes in a war. You know, then yeah. people turn to God yeah. when they're in trouble, which is not a very good way to, uh, or a lot, but put it this way, it's not an adequate way by any means to understand the reality of God. But today, where people are more and more secure by their own ingenuity, uh, they begin to say, well, who needs God? You know, we can take care of ourselves, which is very sad because uh, the deepest problems we have and the deepest uh, longings we have, the deepest questions we have are n cannot be resolved by the world or ourselves or science. Joseph from Farmington says, each year I make New Year's resolutions, such as dieting or breaking bad habits. This year, I'd like to make a resolution that will tie into my faith. Do you have any suggestions for Catholic New Year's resolutions? Oh, goodness, yes, I could mention any number. How about saying a rosary every day? How about having a little examination of conscience uh, every night before you go to bed and saying yeah, night prayers? How about maybe going to Mass uh, or devotions or Eucharistic adoration uh, during the week besides Sunday Mass? Uh, you know, how about spiritual reading? How about devoting at least maybe an hour a week even to to doing something like that? There are any number of things, you know, beyond just the the things that are absolutely required of us that we can we can do to to for a spiritual life, and also in the realm of charity, how about donating some of our time uh, to help uh, something that's connected with the church so that it becomes a sign to other people of our uh, commitment to love of neighbor. You know, there are all kinds of things like that that we can do. How true. Louise from Canton says, My daughter is in a relationship with a man that is not religious. He recently came over to our house and asked why we still had our tree up on January 1st. I tried to explain that Christmas does not end on December 25th, but I had difficulty really explaining why that is. Can you talk about the reason why there are 12 days of Christmas and how Catholics should celebrate these days? Well, uh, Louise, you know, for uh, the church calendar, uh, uh, and I mean, Christmas is a Christian religious feast. It's not a secular one primarily. Uh, there's always the fast before the feast. There's the time of preparation and then the celebration. So Lent is the time of preparation uh, through prayer and penance and charity to celebrate the joy of Easter, which then goes on for several weeks. Advent is the preparation for Christmas, in which it's not as penitential, but it's a time to reflect and prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas, which goes on for several days. Um, but of course, we know that in our culture, uh, Christmas starts on Thanksgiving Day and ends on December 25th, and similarly for Easter. Uh, so it's hard to be countercultural that way. It's hard to carve out for ourselves a proper understanding, but I'm very glad that you're you're trying to do that. Um, and I would say, you know, in the old days, I think it used to be common for people during Christmas week to visit one another. Christmas really mm -hmm. was a time for family visits and friends during the week between Christmas and New Year's. And now 
that is not so well. Of course, with the pandemic, that makes everything kind of a moot uh, point. But but even normally, people just don't do that much anymore. So we can try in our own way to keep it up among among people who are, you know, have the spirit of Christmas from the church. But it's an uphill battle, I will admit. I must tell you, Archbishop, that WJMJ plays Christmas music up until the baptism of the Lord, the celebration of the baptism of the Lord, which this year is is on January 10th, on, on next Sunday. Therefore, uh, we have a lot of people that call or write in, uh, email, and, and compliment us, saying thank you for making Christmas last. We yes. enjoy that so much. And, and I think that we're, we're trying to do our little bit to help people appreciate the fact that Christmas is not just a one-day celebration, but we have the season of Christmas in which we can continue to wish one another a very merry and blessed Christmas as well. Yes, you remember from uh, days in Rome that uh, in uh, in Italy, for example, uh, the gift-giving day is January 6th, the mm-hmm. Epiphany, yeah. uh, not December 25th. And so they had wonderful customs, but I don't know, all of Europe is becoming so secular anymore. Who knows where that will go? But uh, so a lot of different countries' traditions, they begin with Christmas and the Christmas season lasts for a while. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together this morning. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, as we begin a new year of grace, a new, a fresh opportunity uh, to live our lives in accordance with the gospel, we pray, Heavenly Father, that in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus, Uh, to whom belongs all time and all the seasons, that you will give us the grace of constant uh, repentance for our sins, pursuit of virtue and of faith, and that particularly at a time of pandemic, you will help us to overcome this great crisis and keep us all in health of mind and body. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week. Until then, continue to be safe and healthy. Thank you.